Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. My name is Aaron, and I am one of your hosts. There's another host that is joining me today, Daniel Sun. Yo. Now, real quick, before we start today's episode, I just want to say that if you would like to support the show, then there's a few ways that you can do that. One of the ways is Patreon. Each week, we release a Patreon-exclusive episode that only Patreon supporters can get access to. To sign up, it's only $5 a month, which is only 16 cents a day. Not only do you get an extra episode per week for that $5, but you also get access to our entire back catalog of past Patreon episodes. In total, we have over 93 extra Patreon episodes, which is over 130 extra hours of listening pleasure. So to see that full list of Patreon episodes, you can just go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, and click on the Patreon Episodes tab. There you will see the entire list of Patreon-exclusive episodes that we have published. Also, today we added another Patreon-exclusive episode, which is over petroglyphs and all the ancient carvings of space people and aliens and rocks by ancient cultures throughout history. So you get access to that episode as well as all of the others for just $5. Now, if you can't afford a Patreon membership, but you want to help us out, then you can leave us a written review on iTunes or you can leave us one on Spotify. That helps us out a lot. However, don't feel pressured to leave us one if you don't want to. That's fine. We just want you guys, girls, aliens, reptilians, Bigfoot, Sasquatches, Chupacabras, Ghosts, Illuminati members, underground lizard people, whoever or whatever you are to enjoy the show. And that is the end of the announcements. So today's episode is over the Barney and Betty Hill UFO abduction. So how this episode will go today is that we'll talk a little bit about Betty and Barney Hill, and then we'll go into the actual event itself. And then we'll talk about uh, what happened after the event. And then we go into strange facts and findings and then theories. And then, of course, wrap it all up with our own personal thoughts and theories. So with that being said, let's get into today's episode. In the early 1960s, a husband and wife were peacefully driving home when all of a sudden, a glowing, unidentified flying object appeared above them. This object followed their vehicle for miles. Then, it vanished. The couple continued driving home. However, they quickly realized that a large amount of time had passed and that they could not recall what had happened during this missing time. Following that event, they began having nightmares of being abducted by strange creatures, taken on board a strange craft, and experimented on. Was this all a dream, or were they truly abducted by beings not of this world? This is the Barney and Betty Hill UFO Abduction. Alright, so this is the one that started it all the big kahuna of UFO abductions. But before we dive right into the mysterious abduction and the event of Betty and Barney Hill, we should probably get to know them a little bit better to see what kind of people they were 
and maybe why the aliens wanted to abduct them in the first place. So, Dan, do you want to start that off for us? First, we're going to start off with Barney Hill. So he was born on July 20th, 1922, in Newport News, Virginia. Barney had a normal childhood, and right before graduating high school, his family decided to move to Philadelphia. There in Philly, Barney worked as a store clerk for a little while, and then on May 10th, 1941, at the age of 18, he ended up enlisting in the United States Army. And just a little knowledge nugget here, uh, but this was seven months prior to the United States getting involved in World War II. So, eh, kind of bad timing, I guess, you know? Anyway, all right, uh, so Barney served in the Army, in which he became qualified as a truck driver and then as a marksman. So during Barney's time in the Army is when he met and married his first wife, Ruby Horn. And shortly after they got married, she ended up giving birth to their first son. Now, it's around this time that an accident happened. So Barney had a grenade go off near him, which led to him losing his teeth, which he then, of course, had to get dentures. So shortly after that accident, Barney was discharged from the Army. And just a side note, he was discharged on May 8, 1944, which was only two days away from him serving his full three years. Also, even though he was discharged, his enlistment record said excellent in regards to his character. So it wasn't like he was leaving on a bad note. You know, they were like, hey, good job. Way to go. You got your teeth blown out and you got dentures, but hey, way to go, dude. Yeah, you're still here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So two months after being discharged from the Army, Barney was able to get a job with the U.S. Postal Office as a city carrier, where he worked for a while and Ruby gave birth to their second son. So that is Barney in a nutshell. Now, before we go any further, let's hop over to Betty and talk about her real quick. All right. So Betty's real name is Eunice Elizabeth Barrett, and she was born on June 28, 1919 in Newton, New Hampshire. Now, we dug into Betty's history, and the only thing that we could find out about her early life was her name, her date of birth, and where she was born at. Everything else is blank, all the way until you get to her college years, which is a little weird, but whatever. So what we did find is that Betty attended college at the University of New Hampshire. Now, during her sophomore year in college, she developed an abdominal infection and decided to take some time off of school to kind of like recuperate. Well, during this time off, she ended up getting a job as a waitress at Rudy's Farm Kitchen. Side note, they are no longer around, but dang were prices cheap back then. Full course dinners were only a dollar back then. Man, I wish I could get a full course dinner for a dollar. You know how much I paid to fill up my vehicle today? How much? 70 bucks. Ooh, prices are still going up. Ugh, yeah. Anyway, let's continue with the story. All right, uh, so Betty was working as a waitress at this restaurant that had really cheap prices, just like everything did back then. So at this restaurant, there was a young chef named Bob who had just previously gotten divorced. Now, Betty and Bob, they, you know, they kind of talked a little bit, they hit it off, and they started dating. Eventually, on June 7th, 1941, they ended up getting married. Bob ended up getting a better-paying job working as a machinist at the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, and Betty became a full-time housewife. So the job at the shipyard wasn't the only new thing that Bob got, because he ended up finding another woman 
and started running around with her. Oh my god. Yeah. Horrible. Which, of course, Betty agreed that that was horrible when she found out about this, and the couple ended up getting a divorce. Now, after that divorce, Betty decided to purchase a new home and ended up getting a job at the W.T. Grant Company, which was a local department store. Now, during this time, Betty was living her best life. She was single, she had a good job, and she had a new home. Now, I know this is a lot to take in, and you're probably like, what does this have to do with alien abductions? But trust us, this all plays a role in Betty and Barney meeting. Yes, it does. Yeah, so let's continue on with the story. All right. So shortly after Betty moved into her new home, the Gulf Oil Company called her up and told her, hey, we want to purchase your home from you. And the only real reason that we want to purchase your home is so that we could access the land that it's set on. So Betty got a hold of a real estate agent and they had a meeting with this oil company. Now, her real estate agent, who was Charlie Gray, must have been really good at his job because Betty got a hell of a deal in selling her home. She was able to sell it for twice the amount that the oil company initially offered her. Way to go, Betty. Yeah. Betty ended up asking the oil company what they planned to do with her house, and they told her that they were going to bring in Miley Cyrus and come in like a wrecking ball and demolish that house. She was just like, wait, hold up. I will give you a dollar for the house so I can relocate it somewhere else. The oil company was like, eh, okay. And they accepted this offer, and now she had to find a new plot of land to move her house to. Man, that must be a pain in the ass, moving an entire house. Mm. I've seen it done, and it's, it's weird how they do that. You got to get it off the foundation and all that? Holy yeah. Stuff. All right. So with the help of her real estate agent, Betty was able to find a large vacant lot to place her home on. Now, the only issue with this was that she had to wait for the foundation and utilities to be installed before her home could actually be moved onto it. So in the meantime, she needed a place to stay. Now, this is when Betty moved into the boarding house that belonged to Barney's friend. And it is worth noting that the money that Betty got from selling her land, that she was able to go back to college and get her degree. You know, good on her. Yeah, she's investing it in herself. Good job, Betty. Okay, so it's 1956, and Barney and his current wife, Ruby, and their two children were vacationing in the area. Betty and Barney ended up meeting one another. They became friends and ended up exchanging addresses so they could mail each other letters. Fast forward to early 1957. Barney and Ruby decided to separate, and that is when Barney decided to contact Betty again, and their friendship became closer. They started spending lots of time together. Now, we hate to bring this point up, but when Betty and Barney started dating, they did get a lot of weird looks because of their ethnicity. Barney was African-American and Betty was Caucasian. Now, why do we even bring this up? Well, it will come into play later on in the story and many conclusions that arose from this UFO incident actually bring in race as a reason, which is completely dumb. But we just wanted to give you kind of like a heads up. Yep. So we're going to circle back to that later on. All right. Moving forward, so Betty decided to invite Barney over one weekend to her parents for dinner. Now, Betty's family was pretty involved in politics, and Barney was well knowledgeable about politics in general, 
so her family actually took an immediate liking to him. Barney fit right into the family, and then on May 12, 1960, Betty and Barney ended up getting married in Camden, New Jersey. In March of 1961, Barney was still working for the Postal Service in Philadelphia, and I believe what they had to spend 10 months away from one another because he was working in Philadelphia and Betty was working in New Hampshire as a social worker. So Barney ended up transferring to the Boston Postal Office and got a job there. And that's when they could finally live with one another after being apart for like, I think, 10 months. And that's when life was great for the both of them. They lived together. They were in love. Blah, 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 blah. There you go. Dude, that had to be a hell of a drive. Hell yeah. The driving in Boston sucks. God, in general. You, you know that. The roads were made way back in the day and they haven't updated them. So you got old ass horse and carriage roads. And you got people drifting through them like Fast and the Furious. But that's a whole nother topic anyway. Now, it was during this time that the couple had realized that after they got married, they never really went on their honeymoon due to the work and other stuff, you know, living apart. So they decided to go to Niagara Falls and then drive through Montreal, Canada, and then back home to New Hampshire as sort of a belated honeymoon celebration. Now, it was their drive back home when things started to get crazy, and the life of Betty and Barney Hill would change forever. All right, so now that we know a little bit about Betty and Barney Hill and how they met, Let's get into the main part of the episode, the story of the very first ever UFO abduction in history. So Dan, start it off for us. So this all started on September 19th, 1961. And like we were talking about earlier, Betty and Barney were traveling back from Canada where they had just had their belated honeymoon. Now, the drive from Canada to their home in New Hampshire was about five hours, I think close to six hours. And at the time, it was already starting to get late. They were low on cash, so instead of just finding a place to stay for the night, they decided to drive straight home. So it was around 10 p.m., and they were heading down the highway, and Barney uh, decided to take a look at his map. He was looking to see how far the next town was, because they wanted to stop and get some caffeine and some food into their system before they continued on with this long-ass drive back home to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Now, after seeing that the next town was quite a bit away, they decided to turn the car around and go back a few miles to a restaurant they had previously passed. Once they got to the restaurant, Barney ordered a burger and some coffee, and Betty just had coffee. After they finished their drinks and food, they got back onto the highway and were expected to make it back home just a little bit before 3 a.m. So as the couple passed Lancaster, New Hampshire, and started to head down Route 3, Betty started to claim that she had observed a bright ball of light in the sky that moved from below the moon and upward to the west of the moon. Now, Betty believed what she was seeing was actually a falling star. However, it began to move upward like a plane or a satellite. The object then kept growing brighter and bigger. This is when Betty convinced Barney to stop the car so they can get a better look at it, and to go ahead and let their giant wiener dog, Delcy, out to use the restroom. Now, just a side note, I know it's mean, but as someone that used to raise dachshunds before, if you leave a ton of food out, dachshunds will sit there and continue to eat their little piggies sometimes. Well, Delcy was huge. 
is dachshund and a wiener dog is it is that what it is i don't even i don't know much about dog breeds wiener dog is a nickname for dachshunds because of the length of them okay yeah that is a pretty fat wiener dog that she has and we'll have a this picture up on our website just go to our website theories of the third kind.com uh, I think you got to go to the about and then hover over it and then uh, it will have a thing that says references. Click on the references, scroll all the way down and pictures will be at the bottom. But yeah, that's a fat wiener dog. The dog needs to be walked more. Just saying. All right. Uh, so Barney decided to listen to Betty and he ended up pulling their car over. Betty got out of the car and was looking up at the strange light through some binoculars that she had. Now, whatever this was had a flight pattern that was super erratic. So Betty handed the binoculars over to Barney so he could take a look at it. Barney looked through the binoculars and said that it was probably an airliner that was descending in their direction. But as Barney continued to look at it, he stated that it had a very odd flight pattern, as well as weird arrangements of lights on it. After looking at this object in the sky for a little while, they both hopped back into their 1957 Chevy Bel Air and kept driving down Route 3. As they continued to drive, they noticed that this object was still in the sky, and it was sort of following them, as if it was playing a game of cat and mouse. So as they continued to drive down Route 3, they drove through Franconia Notch, which has a natural granite rock formation around the roadside. Pretty cool. As they pass this area, the landscape becomes wide open, where you can see far into the distance. It was at this moment that Betty and Barney noticed that directly in the path that they were driving was the object that had been following them. It was a huge circular disc object that silently hovered 100 feet above the road. It was nearly 60 to 70 feet in diameter, and it had a double row of rectangular windows across the front rim of it. It also had fin-like structures coming out of the sides of it that had two red lights at the end of those structures. Upon seeing that, Barney slammed on the brakes of his car and stopped in the middle of the road. He got out of the car with binoculars in hand and tried to get a look at it. Right when he did, the object moved quickly from above their vehicle to the left of them, just above the treetops that were located across the field from them. Barney then grabbed the handgun that Betty had in the car and slowly walked towards it. <laughs> what the hell is a handgun going to do? It's a UFO. They got it. Oh, my God. All right. So again, Barney lifted his binoculars, and as he looked through them, he saw a group of humanoid figures moving about with what he said was the precision of military officers. The craft then tilted downward and started to descend towards Barney. One of the humanoid figures stayed at the window, which gave Barney the impression that him and Betty were in immediate danger. As Barney stood there in fear, he was able to muster up the courage to stop looking at them through the binoculars and finally run back to the car where Betty and their dog Delcy were waiting. Barney hopped in the car, trembling in fear, nearly breathless. He looked at Betty and told her they needed to get the hell out of here or they were going to be captured. Barney floored it and sped down the highway, trying to flee the aircraft. However, it was right above them, following their vehicle as they raced down the highway. 
It was at this moment that they began hearing buzzing noises and started sensing a weird vibration throughout their vehicle, but they just continued driving. As the weird buzzing noises happened, Betty and Barney didn't say a word to each other and they just kept driving. Eventually, they got off that highway and onto Route 4, sped towards their home in Portsmouth, still thinking they made it home before 3 a.m. However, as they were getting into the town of Portsmouth, they noticed that the sun was rising. So it was definitely way past 3 a.m. Now, Betty ended up writing in her diary about when they got home, and we figured it would be best if we just read from her diary. And So her diary said, and we quote, We entered our home, turned on the lights, and went over to the window and looked skyward. We stood there for several minutes. Then Barney said, This is the most amazing thing that has ever happened to me. We both wondered if they would come back. Then Barney made a comment about the time being later than they were hoping. It was just after 5 a.m. when they arrived home, two hours later than they expected it to be. Betty then wrote again in her diary saying, and we quote, We felt very calm, peaceful, and relaxed. We sat at the kitchen table, looked at each other, and asked one another, Do you believe what happened? We agreed that it was unbelievable, but it had really happened. We would occasionally return to the windows and look skyward. Well, after staring out the window for a bit, Bonnie decided to go shower considering the events that just happened. He said he felt clammy. Then Betty showered, of course, and as well, I think Delcy, the big chungus of dachshunds, showered too. After that, they went to bed hoping to get a good night's rest after their exhilarating trip home. The following morning, Barney suggested that they both go into different rooms and draw what they had observed the night before, which they both did, and the results were uncanny. Both of their drawings were similar in detail. Barney made another suggestion afterwards, though. This time it wasn't to draw something else they saw, but to not tell a soul about what they had experienced. Not because it was fake, but because their experience was so fantastic that no one would ever believe them about it. Betty, on the other hand, she wasn't agreeing with that suggestion. She wrote in her diary saying, and we quote, When we woke up in the afternoon, Barney asked me if I had a feeling they were still around. I agreed with him and we watched the skies, going to the windows and looking up and seeing nothing. It was beginning to rain, so Barney brought our belongings into the back hall. So later that day, Betty ended up calling her sister Janet, saying that the peace and calm feeling that she had this morning was gone. She was starting to feel uneasy. She thought talking to her sister would make her feel better, considering her sister saw what they call an unconventional aircraft in the mid-1950s. And a little side note here, Betty's sister Janet said that she and a few others saw a blimp-shaped craft hovering over a field when they were returning home from a shopping trip. They witnessed several smaller disc-shaped objects approach this blimp-shaped craft and enter into it. This big old craft went up into the sky and disappeared. Which, that story seems a lot more crazier than Betty's and Barney's, just in my opinion. For now. Yeah, until you find out what, what really happened. Anyways, continue on. All right, so during that phone call, 
Betty's sister told her to go outside with the compass and walk around the car and see what happens. So that's exactly what she did. Barney, on the other hand, didn't really want to be involved at all. In fact, he kind of wanted to forget it ever happened. Again, Betty wrote in her diary saying, I took the compass and went out to the car. Barney refused to go, saying that he was trying to forget what happened. It was still raining, but I could see my car clearly under the street light in front of my home. I walked around it, holding the compass and not knowing what I was looking for. When I came to the trunk area, I saw many highly polished spots, about the size of a half dollar or silver dollar. The car was wet from the rain, but these spots were clearly showing. I wondered what they were. I placed the compass over them. It began spinning and spinning. I thought it must be the way I was balancing the compass, so I placed it on the car and took my hand away. The compass was really spinning and continued to do this. As I was watching this, I was filled with an unexplained feeling of absolute terror. I was standing there in the rain under the streetlight and telling myself, don't scream, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Everything is all right. That is when Barney decided to come outside with his neighbor, and they all experimented with the compass and kind of just looked at the strange markings on the trunk, pointing at him, saying, whoa, that's weird. Now, the car wasn't the only thing damaged or messed with during that night. Barney's shoes were all scraped up on the top, you know, his dress shoes, and his pants legs had little pickers and plant matter all over them. They think the plant stuff happened when he was, you know, walking toward the object that night and then ran away running in fear. Then the leather strap around his neck holding the binoculars was broken, and his upper back, for some reason, was severely sore. Now, Betty's new blue dress that she was wearing that night had also been torn, but they don't know how it was torn or why They also realized that uh, both of their watches had stopped working that next morning. No matter how much they kind of wound them up, they would just not work. Kind of weird. Yeah. Now that they realized all of this stuff had happened to their clothing and automobile, Betty decided it was actually time to call the Pease Air Force Base, located in Newington, New Hampshire, which was the neighboring town. When she called them, she told them that a few days earlier, that she had seen an unidentified flying object. The interviewing officer got the general description of the craft from Betty, but for some reason, Barney decided not to mention when he talked to him about the humanoid figures that he had seen through his binoculars. Now, why didn't Barney tell the officer about them? Well, he didn't want to be labeled as like a crazy person, you know, because back then, people weren't just seeing aliens and UFOs and stuff like that. It was not reported and not talked about. So the officer got enough information from Betty and Barney and uh, kind of like let them know that, hey, I'll, I'll contact you later on if, if I need more information. It didn't take long. A couple hours later, they actually got a call back from a Major Paul W. Henderson from Peace Air Force Base, who asked more questions about the event. The major was very interested in the craft itself, though especially the wing-like structures that slid out from each side of the craft that had the red lights on them. The Major insisted on talking to Barney about it, in which Barney was hesitant at first, but then he did eventually get on the phone and told the Major everything that happened. When Barney was telling him all about the ship and its interesting wings, 
He told Betty that the major did not seem to be surprised or in disbelief, as if he kind of like already knew about this. So after that phone call, the major called back again and asked if they'd be willing to be put through to some other line where their call would be monitored. Barney and Betty agreed to do so. Then they were transferred to another line. And the funny thing was is that they had no idea who they were transferred to or who they were even talking to. Weird. I think that would have been the first thing I would have asked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who, who am I talking to? Don't worry about it. Just, just talk. Just tell me your story. <laughs> now, the next day, they received another phone call from the major. This time, it was mostly to let the Hills know that he was up all night writing their report. He just needed a few more details for it to be finished up, and he had to reassure Betty that he would be sending it to the right people. Because Betty was very assertive about him taking their report seriously. She was like, listen here, Major. I know what I saw, and damn it, you will let the Air Force know that there are UFOs, you scrawny little man. Okay, she didn't really say it like that, but she was very adamant about it, though. So after that report was filed with the Air Force base, the Hills decided to start doing their own sort of like investigation to try to get a better understanding of what occurred that night. So then on September 23rd, a few days after the event, Betty decided to head down to the local library and actually found a book called The Flying Saucer Conspiracy by Major Donald Kehoe. In this book, Betty read about how other people have also witnessed similar objects, which kind of gave her some comfort in knowing that her and Barney weren't the only ones to have something like this happen to them. As Betty continued reading through the book, she found an address, which this address was to the NICAP, which is the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. And Betty found out that if you had seen an unidentified flying object, then you could write them and tell them about it, which is exactly what she did. Now, a few days later is when things started to go south for Betty, and she started to experience a series of disturbing nightmares. Now, these nightmares continued for five straight nights and then never returned. However, the thoughts and images of these nightmares remained with Betty, and throughout the day, she would often think about them. Now, before we get into the details of those nightmares, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash ev9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. All right, welcome back. So, Dan, tell us about these dreams slash nightmares. 
In November of 1961, Betty actually began writing down the details of those dreams. In one dream, she and Barney encountered a roadblock and men who surrounded their car. She lost consciousness but struggled to regain it. Then she realized that she was being forced by two small men to walk in a forest at night. The men stood around five feet to five feet four inches tall and wore matching blue uniforms with caps similar to those worn by military cadets. They appeared nearly human with black hair, dark eyes, prominent noses, and bluish lips. Their skin, however, was a grayish color. In the dreams, Betty, Barney, and the men walked up a ramp into a disc-shaped craft of metallic appearance. Once inside, Barney and Betty were separated. She protested and was told by a man she called the leader that if she and Barney were examined together, it would take much longer to conduct the exams. She and Barney were then taken to separate rooms. Betty then dreamt that a new man, similar to the others, entered to conduct her exam with the leader. Betty called this new man the examiner and said he had a pleasant, calm manner to him. Though the leader and the examiner spoke to her in English, the examiner's language seemed imperfect, and she kind of had a bit of difficulty understanding him. The examiner told Betty that he would conduct a few tests to note the differences between humans and the craft's occupants. He seated her on a chair, and a bright light shined on her. The man cut off a lock of Betty's hair. He examined her eyes, ears, mouth, teeth, throat, and hands. He saved trimmings from her fingernails. (laughs) So after examining Betty's legs and feet, the man used a dull knife similar to a letter opener, to scrape some of her skin onto what resembled uh, a piece of cellophane. He then tested her nervous system, and he then thrusted a needle into her navel, which caused Betty agonizing pain, whereupon the leader waved his hand in front of her eyes and the pain vanished. The examiner left the room, and Betty engaged in conversation with the leader. She picked up a book with rows of strange symbols that the leader said she could take home with her. She also asked where he came from, and he pulled down an instructional map dotted with stars. Which, side note, we go over this in more details in Strange Facts and Findings. Yeah, that strange, or that star map we talk about in full detail, which is super interesting, by the way. All right, so following that, the men began escorting the hills from the ship when kind of like a disagreement broke out between them. The leader then informed Betty that she couldn't keep the book, stating that they had decided that the uh, other men did not want her to even remember this encounter. Betty insisted that no matter what they did to her memory, she would one day recall the events. Betty and Barney were then taken to their car, where the leader suggested that they wait to watch the crash departure. They did so, and then resumed their drive. So that right there was Betty's dreams that she had over a five-night period, which was super detailed. And honestly, it sounds like my dreams after I have a McDonald's breakfast and then go to sleep, which if you don't know about that, go eat a uh, breakfast at McDonald's. It could be anything. And uh, go take a nap afterward. And I guarantee you, you will have the most vivid dreams of your life. 
they put something in their food. But anyways, that's a whole nother side topic. Oh, yeah. All right. Um, so a few days after Betty had those dreams, a few members of the NICAP, which was that UFO group that Betty wrote to, uh, well, a few of their members actually visited uh, Betty and Barney to kind of like interview them about their encounter. A few of the members noted that it was odd how they had some missing time that they had no explanation for and suggested that the couple seek out hypnosis to help them recall what had happened during that missing time. Barney was sort of hesitant on the idea, but Betty was open to it. However, the couple didn't immediately seek out hypnosis. Instead, they were making frequent weekend drives to the White Mountains, hoping that revisiting the site might spark more memories. Around this time, the Hills also attended a meeting at their church where there was a guest speaker, Captain Ben H. Sweat of the United States Air Force. So the Hills approached this Captain Sweat privately and told him about their strange encounter. Sweat was particularly interested in the missing time of the Hills account. He was like, hey, you got a really strange account, but what about the missing time that happened? I want to know more about that. Well, the Hills were like, hey, uh, what if you hypnotize us as a way to kind of like help us recover the memories of what had happened during that missing time? But Sweat was like, eh, I'm just an amateur hypnosis guy. Uh, I don't. I don't think I'm going to do it. Sorry, guys. Almost a full year later, on September 7th, 1963, Captain Sweat returned to the Hills Church and gave another formal lecture on hypnosis. After the lecture, the Hills mentioned to Captain Sweat that Barney was going to see a psychiatrist, a Mr. Stevens. Captain Sweat then suggested that Barney ask Stevens about the use of hypnosis in their case that they mentioned the year prior. So following that, is when Barney met with Stevens and he, you know, kind of said, hey, this captain suggested, you know, I'd get some hypnosis done to me. And which Stevens was like, yeah, hey, I know this guy named Benjamin Simon and he's located in Boston and he's really good at hypnosis. You guys should go check him out. So on December 14th, 1963, Betty and Barney actually met with Benjamin Simon and spoke to him about their UFO encounter. So after hearing their story, Simon agreed to place them under hypnosis to try and uncover more about what truly happened to them that night. All right. Now this is where things get really good. However, real quick, before we get into that, let's take a quick break. It is our last one. It'll be really fast, I promise. And welcome back. So, Aaron. Pick up right where you left off and tell us about the hypnosis. All right. So Benjamin Simon agreed to do the hypnosis and began hypnotizing the Hills on January 4th, 1964. He hypnotized Betty and Barney several times each, and the sessions lasted until June 6th, 1964. Now Simon conducted the sessions on Barney and Betty separately so that they could not overhear one another's recollections and kind of like influence one another, you know? That's smart. Yep. Simon hypnotized Barney first. His recall of witnessing non-human figures was quite emotional with expressions of fear and emotional outbursts. Barney said that, due to his fear, he kept his eyes closed for much of the abduction and physical examination. 
Based on these early responses, Simon told Barney that he would not remember the hypnosis sessions until he was certain he could remember them without being further traumatized. Under hypnosis, Barney reported that the binocular strap had broken when he ran from the UFO back to his car. He recalled driving the car away from the UFO, but that afterwards he felt irresistibly compelled to pull off the road and drive into the woods. He eventually saw six men standing in the dirt road. The car stalled, and three of the men approached the car. They told Barney not to fear them, and he reported that the leader told Barney to close his eyes. The beings often stared into his eyes, said Barney, with a terrifying, mesmerizing effect. Now, during this hypnosis, Barney would say things like, Oh, those eyes. They're there in my brain. And that was from his first session. And then during his second session, he said uh, things such as, I was told to close my eyes because I saw two eyes coming close to mine. And I felt like the eyes had pushed into my eyes. And then during the third session, he said, All I see are these eyes. I'm not even afraid that they're not connected to a body. They're just there. They're just up close to me, pressing against my eyes. How weird is that? That's really weird. The eyes weren't connected to bodies? That's how aliens kiss. They put their eyeballs against yours. Anyway. So they take their eyeballs out and kiss them, kiss them. (laughs) That's exactly what they do. All right, so what else happened during their hypnosis or Barney's hypnosis event? All right. Barney related that he and Betty were taken onto the disc-shaped craft where they were separated. He was escorted to a room by three of the men and told to lie on a small rectangular exam table. Barney's narrative of the exam was fragmented. He continued to keep his eyes closed for most of the exam. A cup-like device was placed over his genitals now, he didn't experience an orgasm, but he did think that uh, maybe a sperm sample had been taken from him. The little men also scraped his skin and peered into his ears and mouth. A tube or cylinder was inserted into his anus and then quickly removed. Boy, I'm telling you, those aliens are freaks, man. Freak. <laughs> yeah. Uh, One of them felt his spine and uh, seemed to be kind of like counting his vertebrae. I guess trying to like tickle him, you know? Oh. It's like one vertebrae, two vertebrae. You don't need this one. Here, I'm going to stick this tube up your ass. (laughs) Did you feel that? No, you didn't. (laughs) All right. So what else happened? While Betty reported a conversation with the leader in English, Barney said that he heard them speaking in a mumbling language he did not understand. Betty also mentioned this in detail. The few times they communicated with him, Barney said it seemed to be through telepathy. Both Betty and Barney stated that they hadn't observed the beings' mouths moving when they communicated in English with them. Now, Barney then recalled being escorted from the ship and taken to his car. And he was kind of like in a daze as he watched the ship leave. And that right there was pretty much the details of Barney's hypnosis findings. Now, Let's go over what Betty experienced during hers. So under hypnosis, Betty's account was pretty much almost exactly the same to her five dreams that she had previously about her UFO abduction. But there was some notable differences. 
mainly pertaining to her capture and release. Uh, also, the technology on the craft was different, and the short men kind of differed significantly in physical appearance, and uh, the sequential order of the abduction kind of differed a little bit. So I can't say it was exactly, but it was pretty close. You know, when you said the capture and release, the first thing that came to my mind Pokemon was our fishing. Oh, well, our fishing? fishing tournament. Oh, you think it just made me? Oh, it just made me think that aliens are in fishing tournaments. Maybe seeing how many yeah. humans they can capture. We'll yeah, save that then, during theories. Well, all that's a good theories yeah. topic. Oh, that's funny. Barney's and Betty's memories and hypnosis were, however, consistent with one another. Betty exhibited considerable emotional distress when recounting her capture and examination. Simon ended one session early because tears were flowing down her cheeks. And that was Betty's hypnosis sessions in a nutshell. Now, after these hypnosis sessions, Simon kind of speculated that Barney's recollection of the UFO encounter was possibly a fantasy uh, that was kind of like inspired by Betty's dreams that she'd previously had. Simon thought it was like the most reasonable and consistent explanation. However, Barney, on the other hand, kind of like rejected this idea. And he said that their memories were consistent in some regards, uh, but that there were also portions of both their narratives that were unique to each. So that it couldn't have been uh, Betty's influence of her nightmares that she had. Now, even though the Hills and Simon disagreed about the cause of their distress, they all concurred that the hypnosis sessions were effective and the Hills were no longer tormented by abduction anxiety. Following the hypnosis, the Hills went back to their regular lives. They were willing to discuss the alleged UFO encounter with friends, family, and the occasional UFO researcher. But they made no effort to seek publicity from the event. Now that would all change for them. So way back in late 1963, the Hills had actually done a lecture in the Quincy Center about what occurred to them. Now, during that lecture, someone had brought in an audio tape and ended up recording what they were saying. Now, this audio recording was actually given to a reporter named John H. Luttrell, who then started to look into the Hills. He learned that they had undergone hypnosis with Simon and he also obtained notes from confidential interviews the Hills had given to other UFO investigators. Following that, on October 25, 1965, John Luttrell published a front-page story in the Boston Traveler that said, UFO Chiller, Did They Seize a Couple?, in which it told the story of Betty and Barney Hill. That following day, the United Press International picked up John Luttrell's story and this is what caused the Hills to earn international attention. A year later, in 1966, writer John G. Fuller got together with the Hills and Simon, and they ended up publishing a book called The Interrupted Journey, which was about the Hills and what had happened to them. Now, this book was a quick success, and it actually went through several printings. A few years later, in February of 1969, at the age of 46, Barney Hill ended up passing away from cerebral hemorrhage. After Barney's passing, Betty went on to become sort of a celebrity in the UFO community. Then on October 17th, 2004, at the age of 85, Betty Hill herself ended up passing away. 
And that is the story of Betty and Barney Hill's abduction. But of course, it doesn't end there, because now we're going to get into some juicy, juicy stuff. We're going to get into these strange facts and findings. So Dan, do you want to start it off for us and tell us about our first strange fact and finding? Of course. All right. This first strange fact and finding is about the drawing that Barney did during his hypnosis session. Their hypnosis session was held on February 22, 1964, 12 days before that of an episode of The Outer Limits had aired on the television called The Bolero Shield. Well, episode of The Outer Limits, what was that, like a UFO show? I think so. Let's look that up real quick. The Outer Limits was an American television series broadcasted on ABC from 1963 to 1965. It was basically kind of like, it was compared to The Twilight Zone with greater emphasis on science fiction stories Ah. rather than uh, super supernatural. Gotcha. Okay, so kind of like creatures and stuff like that. All right. Now, on that episode, The Bolero Shield, there was a slight resemblance between the drawing that Barney did and the alien creature that's on there. They both had the absence of ears, nose, and hair. And they both sort of had the upward slanted eyes. Which I have to say, um, (laughs) Barney is a horrible drawer. At first I thought that was a snake, I'm not gonna lie. He's not very good at drawing. I'm a snake. (laughs) I'm a snake. I'm not an alien. I'm a snake. And the uh, person on the Outer Limits TV show looks like a superhero. He's got like a superhero mask on. But it's his face. Yeah. So, uh, of course, you can go to our website, go to references, scroll all the way down, and you can take a look at uh, this image and drawing of that Barney did during his hypnosis session and see his wonderful artistic skills. Yeah, they think that his drawing was from this show, because this show aired on February 10th of 1964, and their session was on February 22nd. So they think it was influenced by this. Which, eh? Oh. Eh. Okay. Which, eh, it's a little weird, but not as weird as our next strange fact and finding. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so let's get into our next strange fact and finding, which is about Betty's dream and her hypnosis, okay? So during these events, Betty mentioned how she communicated with the leader of this spaceship and how she asked him where he was from, in which this leader pulled up the star map and pointed to a star system. Well, after one of Betty's hypnosis sessions uh, with Simon... Simon actually suggested that Betty kind of sketch a copy of that star map out, in which she did. But she ended up only drawing the stars that kind of like stood out in her memory, which were the brightest ones. Now, this map that she drew consisted of 12 prominent stars connected by lines and three lesser ones that formed a distinct triangle. Betty stated that... uh, she was told that the stars connected by solid lines formed trade routes, whereas dash lines were two less traveled stars. So kind of like these aliens had trade routes, like intergalactic trade routes that they went on to trade stuff. 
which was kind of cool. But that's not the craziest thing out of all this. So get this, that star map and everything that Betty had mentioned during her hypnosis session about this map was mentioned in that book that was published called The Interrupted Journey. So in 1968, an elementary school teacher who was also an amateur astronomer named Marjorie Fish actually read Betty and Barney's book. Now, Marjorie was super intrigued by this star map and wondered if she could decipher it to kind of like determine which star system this UFO came from. And Marjorie ended up doing just that. So she assumed that one of the 15 stars on the map must represent Earth's sun. So she ended up constructing like a three-dimensional model of nearby sun-like stars using thread and beads, basing stellar distances on those published in the 1969 star catalog. And after studying thousands of vantage points over several years, Marjorie ended up finding a match to Betty's star map. Now, this match was a double star system of Zeta Reticuli, which was about 39 light years from Earth. Now, as amazing as that sounds, I didn't do it justice at all in explaining it. So we have a quick video that we're going to take a listen to where an individual named Stanton Friedman, who is a nuclear physicist, just like myself, might I say. Nice. Uh, he explains this Zeta Reticuli star system a little bit better than me. So we're going to take a listen to that right now. Despite the fact that Marjorie Fish tried thousands of different combinations of stars to try to match Betty's pattern, she was able to find one and only one pattern that matched angle for angle, line length for line length, what Betty had drawn. The star pattern makes sense from nearest star to nearest star to nearest star. The sun is part of the pattern. Quite remarkably, every one of the stars in the pattern is the right kind for planets and life. And all of the right kind of stars for planets and life in this volume of space are part of the pattern. The chance of that happening by accident, all the right kind and only the right kind for pattern stars, is one in several thousand. Perhaps most remarkably, this work tells us where one set of visitors originates. The base stars Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 reticuli are a very special pair of stars. Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 reticuli are the closest to each other pair of stars suitable for planets and life in our entire neighborhood. Instead of being isolated from their neighbors as we are, Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 are a hundred times closer to each other than we are to our nearest neighbor. It would not be surprising if space travel developed earlier between such close neighbors. Zeta-1 and 2 reticuli are over a billion years older than Earth, clearly giving any beings living there a long evolutionary head start on us. We went to Ohio State University to get an expert opinion about the validity of Marjorie Fish's star map work. Professor Walter Mitchell has been a professional astronomer for over 20 years. It uh, took me quite a long time to gain a full appreciation for the work of Marjorie Fish, but uh, it's become apparent over the years that, um, first of all, the work is without question accurate. So what do you think of that? That's pretty interesting, the fact that this teacher was able to figure that out. 
Yeah. Amazing. It's crazy that Betty was able to draw this star system and that this elementary teacher came along. And nothing wrong with elementary teachers. I love teachers, right? I say give them a raise. Anyway, she came along and she studied it for years and ended up finding this Zeta Reticuli star system that matched it perfectly. Wow. And that they've been there for billions of years. Huh? Ooh. That's if the planet lasts that long. Don't lie to me. It ain't that old. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, man. No, that's, that's like the one thing that gets me about this whole thing is that map itself. Yeah. It's strange. Very strange indeed. Oh, yeah. All right. Let's go on to our next strange fact and finding, which, Dan, do you want to tell us about this IBM and CIA connection? Yeah. All right, this strange fact and finding is about the meeting that Betty and Barney Hill had with two guys from IBM, Robert Holman and C.D. Jackson. So Betty and Barney's Hill's story caught their attention when they were having lunch with Major Donald Kehoe when they saw the article about the Hill's encounter. The way they introduced and carried themselves confused Betty into thinking they might actually be government scientists visiting on official business. When they were questioning the Hills, it actually left them with more questions than answers. Betty wrote in her diary saying, in a quote, They're questioning us in specific areas. How many miles was it from Colebrook to Portsmouth? How long did the trip take? Why did we average 25 to 30 miles per hour on a clear night with no traffic on the highways with fast speed limits? What happened between the two series of beeping sounds? Were any of our belongings missing? How did Delcy, the dog, react? Did we have any nitrates in the car? They stimulated our thinking and we were able to pinpoint specific areas at certain times. This meeting lasted for five hours. Now, why they asked about nitrates, Betty didn't know why. They didn't really explain that. But there was an individual that was also there named Major Jim McDonald, who was a retired Air Force intelligence officer at Pease Air Force Base, working as a USAF consultant. He was a friend of the Hills, and come to find out that something they didn't seem to mention was the fact that he was formerly in the CIA. Supposedly, if he was working at the Air Force Base while being in the CIA, he was most likely working undercover and would be a serious violation if anyone found out. The reason he was at the meeting was to actually, I guess, be the speaker for Betty. When she wanted to ask a question, he would ask the question for her. Which was kind of weird, considering I'm pretty sure she could talk and ask herself. Wait, so Betty and Barney Hill had a meeting with those two guys, Robert Holman and C.D. Jackson from IBM. Yeah. And during one of their meetings, Betty had a Major Jim McDonald from Pease Air Force Base, who was kind of like their consultant that was asking questions to IBM. On Betty's behalf, as she sat there. That is so weird. And this Jim McDonald, who was kind of like the consultant for Betty and Barney Hill, was an undercover CIA agent. And nobody knew it. Betty and Barney knew, but they weren't supposed to say anything because they didn't know the time period that he was a CIA agent. Oh. If he was actually CIA and he was at the Air Force Base working as an intelligence officer, 
that would actually be a violation of some sort. I don't know what, but it would have gotten him into major trouble because, I mean. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, earlier when uh, you said that they suggested hypnosis, mm-hmm. it was actually Jim McDonald that suggested that hypnosis. It was actually not only just him, but it was like multiple other people. And the sweat guy. Yeah, multiple, not only just sweat, but also the people with, um, so you know when uh, Betty wrote the NICAP, the National Investigation Committee on Aerial Phenomenon? Yeah. Some of those people actually suggested the hypnosis as well. And then you got Captain Sweat who came to the church and did his like lecture about hypnosis. He suggested it as well. You had a lot of people suggesting it, which is kind of like eh, a little fishy, you know? Just as fishy as this consultant CIA guy being there and asking questions on behalf of Betty when she sat there. It's kind of weird. It is very weird. And why was IBM there to begin with? Were they trying to figure out technology that was hidden? They were trying to figure out mostly about the aircraft itself. They didn't really care about, like, what happened to Betty and Barney. They just wanted to know more about the aircraft. Why were they moving at slow speeds? Because maybe the aircraft was doing something to the vehicle. Did it affect the dog in any way? Weren't they just a computer company? That's what (laughs) I I thought. That's that's what I thought also. Oh, man, that's... Unless IBM stands for something else now. Or back then, I don't know. All right, so let's go on to our next strange fact and finding, which is... uh, about Project Blue Book and its mention of this case. Now, this report that was filed in Project Blue Book was actually filed by the major. But when it got to Project Blue Book's director, he actually reached out to Concord Air Force Station in Vermont, where they did say that they were tracking something and did spot a UFO seven hours prior to the recorded time of Hill's encounter. Then the director got information from the Peace Air Force Base that their precision approach radar had sighted a UFO two hours following the Hill's encounter. But for some reason, the first radar sighting was not connected to the Hill's encounter, and in fact, uh, that the report wasn't made until three days after the incident occurred. Then the radar sighting with Peace Air Force Base was not connected to Project Blue Book's headquarters, even though it was normal, like, Air Force policy to do so. They then sent it uh, eight days after the report with the Hills, and they sent a memo with it stating, No availability of observers for early interrogation precluded electrical transmission of report. But of course, they were open and willing for an interview, interrogation about what had happened. The Project Blue Book director sent all this information to the electronics branch of the USAF Foreign Technology Division inquiring about what they thought it was. And basically, they responded with, The relatively low speed and high altitude of the subject UFO coupled with the erratic course, including hovering, appear to rule out a normal aircraft target and favor some target as a weather balloon. It is suggested that if it is desired to pursue the investigation further, a check might be made of activities in the area responsible for launching and tracking weather balloons. So the director was like, eh, mess on that. I'm not going to track down weather balloons and basically accepted the conclusion. 
Now, if you do want to read more about this Project Blue Book and their reports, there's actually a really nice write-up on it with transcripts of the report and everything. And we'll provide a link to that on our website. You can go to uh, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, go to references, scroll all the way down to the bottom, and there will be a link to the transcript of the reports and everything for you to go take a look at. So yeah, the government was like, eh, it wasn't a UFO. Yeah, well, it might have been a weather balloon. Check to see if the, anybody launched any weather balloons. The director's just like, eh. Yeah, and they were like, nah, man, we're too lazy to do that. That's what they said. Not going to waste money on that. Yeah, it's not a UFO. Two bases pretty much was just like, yeah, we tracked something and we saw something on the radar. Yeah. They even mentioned like that the first major uh, wrote the report for the uh, Hills, that everything was typed up on the form except for the check mark for like unidentified flying object or some shit. And they're just like, maybe that was an accidental mark. So, yeah, it probably was a weather balloon. Huh. Accidental. Yeah. Okay. Weird. All right. So we do have two more strange facts and findings, but they're actually videos that we came across. Now, we did find the complete hypnosis of Barney Hill, and we found it on YouTube. And uh, we will have a link to that if you want to go watch it. I think it's, what, 40 minutes long? Yeah, about 40 minutes. And uh, it's, it's pretty old, so the quality's not that great. So just keep that in mind. But it is worth going and take, you know, uh, you know, take a listen to for a couple minutes or whatever. Or if you want to, listen to the whole 40 minutes. It's up to you. There is another video, uh, which is an interview with Betty Hill. It's when she's a little bit older but it kind of goes over what we already talked about. But it is interesting to see her tell it uh, herself. So if you want, you can go take a look at those videos. Again, those will be on our website as well. Very interesting stuff. Oh, yeah. I do got one more strange fact and finding that I didn't add to the document. Okay. I forgot, actually. And I remembered after we were going through it. Remember how we brought up about their ethnicity? I had found a paper that was written. And it actually quotes Dr. Simon, the one that did the hypnosis on him. He actually went through and he was talking about how he never knew the, like, the personal life of the Hills. All he was there for was just to you know do the hypnosis and stuff like that. Well, he was quoted saying, I knew nothing of Mr. Hill's problems, but when he introduced his wife, who was white, I wondered fleetingly if their interracial marriage might be involved in Mr. Hill's disturbance. What? Yes. Now, it goes on when he was under hypnosis, supposedly when he was talking about the restaurant, Barney was questioning if the waitress was white or black. He was, uh, he was like, the restaurant was nearly deserted, a few teenagers gathered in a far corner, only one woman, the waitress in the quiet restaurant seemed to show any reaction at all to the fact that Betty and Barney Hills was a mixed marriage. However, Barney's version of the incident recounted under hypnosis is much more detailed. What Barney said was, I decide to stop and check my map, and I turn around, go back to the restaurant I've passed, and I park. We go in, there's a dark-skinned woman in there, I think, dark by Caucasian standards, and I wondered if she is a light-skinned African-American, or is she Indian? Or is she white? She and she waits on us. She's not very friendly, and I notice this. And the others are there, and they're looking at me and Betty, and they seem to be friendly or pleased. But this dark-skinned woman doesn't. I wondered then more so 
is she African-American? And I wonder if I, or if she is wondering if I know she is African-American trying to pass off for being white. And I'm just like reading this article and it goes on about like the doctor is questioning him about like his ethnicity and stuff. And then it gets down to the part that intrigued me the most. Is in recalling his experience at, uh, about the abduction, Barney's first impression of one alien is that his face reminds him of a redheaded Irishman. A second abductor, this one with an evil face, is evocated of a German Nazi. Then Barney insists that the other one's eyes were slanted, but not like a Chinese man. Then Betty, meanwhile, compares the extraterrestrials to mongoloids. And it just like goes on about, you know, extraterrestrials looking oriental or Asiatic. It just, this document is full of weird stuff about ethnicity. But yeah, this document's pretty interesting. I'll put a link up. You can read it. All right. So now we're going to transition into theories. So let's just talk about the first theory as to what this could be. This theory is that the entire thing is made up. Now, why would they do this? I mean, they were just getting back from their belated honeymoon and they wanted maybe to keep things interesting. So on their way back, maybe they decided to have like a little role play action, you know, with being abducted. I don't know. You know, each to their own. Uh, We don't know what kind of kinky stuff they could have been into, you know, alien or not. Uh, An alien not knowing how to take a zipper off, you know, since her dress was a little torn, but. Whatever. Sounds like maybe things got a little heated and they made up this role play story to kind of hide what they were really doing on their way home. Or maybe they just made up the entire story to begin with. Yeah. I don't know. I don't I don't really like this theory, but there was a lot of inconsistency supposedly with their story. But then, like you say, the the star map and just like certain details. I mean, it's kind of hard to say that they made that up considering now. There's something that I found out that was interesting is that I was listening to an interview with one of the family members of Betty and Barney Hill, and she talked about how her grandmother or aunt, I can't remember if it was her grandmother or aunt that was Betty. Oh, you're talking about uh, Kathy? I don't know who it was. I can't remember the chick's name. I think it was her aunt. So she mentioned how her family was big into satellites, not only satellites, but Betty was big into stars and looking for new stars. Now, it was noted that Betty did say that when she initially first saw the light in the sky, which was the AKA UFO, whenever they were driving back, that she initially thought that she may have discovered a new star, which that tells me she is knowledgeable in star systems. Because if she would have just looked up in the sky and said, hey, uh, that right there is, you know, that star system. I don't know that shit. I know the Little Dipper, Big Dipper, North Star, that's it, you know. And I have some proof that she knew what star systems were, uh, that I'm going to play that proof right now. Well, we would cross over the border into New Hampshire, and I think we started to see this light following. Actually, in the very beginning, I noticed a bright light in the sky, and I thought I was discovering a new planet until it started to move. All right, so there you go. She thought she was discovering a new planet. 
that tells me she was knowledgeable in planets and their locations. Otherwise, she wouldn't have known, hey, that was a new planet. She would have just thought it was another star. Mm. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm stretching it there. Okay. I'm going to counter that one. Okay. So I read an interview, and I believe it was with, uh, it was with one of the guys that came to interview her. He said that he hung out with Betty like after the interview, and he said they were walking outside, and she confused a star or something with one of the streetlights. So she thought a streetlight was actually in the sky like a star or something. And that's when he realized that Betty's eyesight was not that good. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I forgot which interview was. Well, my whole thing was that, like, this proves that she was knowledgeable of star systems. And maybe she already knew about Zeta Reticuli and she drew up Zeta Reticuli. But how she was able to see it, I don't know. Can you even see Zeta Reticuli in the night sky? Can you see Zeta Reticuli star system? And I guess if you have binoculars, maybe? Okay, uh, Zeta Reticuli is a binary star system that can be found in the constellation of Reticulum and is visible in the night sky from the southern hemisphere and can be seen with the naked eye as a double star in very dark skies. Oh, and considering it was a clear night. Yeah. And she kept looking up up the sky when they got out. She got the, she even had binoculars, which, okay, who carries binoculars in their car all the time? Well, I know my grandmother has binoculars on her. Uh, <laughs> we know she does. Uh, all the time on her. I mean, you got to think, it was, it was a different time back then. I mean, that's taking people watch it to a whole new level. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe they were just into, like, looking at stars, you know, and that's why they had b the binoculars. Well, her family was into satellites and stuff, so maybe. Yeah. All right. So let's go to the next theory, Dan. Do you want to tell us about this next one? Yes. This one kind of goes along with the story was made up, but Barney and Betty were kind of confused. They were on their way home. They stopped at a diner to get some coffee, low on cash, couldn't stay anywhere for the night, you know, so they decided to keep on driving, and it was about a five, six-hour drive. They left the diner around 10 p.m., so it was already late that night. Maybe being tired and they started to get delusional, something did happen, but they couldn't remember what it was, so they decided to go with the story of them being abducted to try and make sense of the time lost. Highway hypnosis is a contributing factor into this. Which, if you don't know what that is, let me explain to you. Highway hypnosis, or also known as white line fever, is an altered mental state which a person can drive an automobile great distances, responding to external events in the expected safe and correct manner with no recollection of having consciously doing so. Which, I know, Aaron, you've done it. I've done it. A thousand times. I used to work uh, at a nuclear plant in Texas, which there's only two, okay? And I used to live an hour and a half from it. Yeah, hour and a half, 84 miles one way. So I'd drive 84 miles one way there. I'd work a 12-hour shift, turn around, and drive 84 miles back home. And I would do this during outages where we'd work 12 hours a day, six days a week. And uh, yeah, highway hypnosis is real. I would be driving and all of a sudden kind of like come to 
and say, holy shit, what happened in between this town and this town? And I would forget, you know, did I already pass this one town? Because that's how I'd, I would keep track of where I was at on the road and how close I was to either home or to work was if I passed a certain town, you know? Yep. But yeah, highway hypnosis is 100% real. Happens to me all the time. Yeah, and you just think about it. They were driving down the road, getting a highway hypnosis, and then you just come to and you're just like, how'd I get here? Happens all the time. I know it's happened to you because I remember you texted me multiple times just like, I have no idea how I just got to work. Yeah, or maybe I was abducted by an alien, you know, or aliens. Did they stick that tube in your butt real quick and then pull it out? Like, did you feel that? If they did it, I can't remember it, you know. Maybe we need to put you in hypnosis. Tell us your secrets. <laughs> I did that drive for almost 10 years of my life, and it sucked. And I'm glad I don't have that drive anymore. My work is literally 10 minutes up the road, maybe even less than 10 minutes, probably five or seven minutes up the road. Actually, I'll time it tomorrow on my way in and see what the actual time is from my driveway to when I park. I'm going to say 12 minutes. That includes stoplights. Okay. Well, I go a back way. I go back behind, uh, like, um, I go back behind the stoplights, back behind Goodwill. Oh. And then take a right. So I go through, like, all the sneaky ways. All right, 11 minutes. So I miss all the lights. Yeah. All right, well, we'll see. All right, so let's go to our next theory, which is that the Hills were actually abducted and that the aliens did do some odd experiments on them and kind of like erased their memories. Well, at least kind of like made them forget temporarily what happened to them. But, you know, with the help of hypnosis, they were able to kind of remember the traumatic events that occurred. Which the hypnosis therapy reminds me a lot of the movie The Fourth Kind. Have you ever seen that, Dan? I don't think I've ever seen it. Oh, you need to watch it. Uh, matter of fact, you should probably watch it tomorrow night when we got some free time. What free time? No, <laughs> exactly. What free time? As of right now, when we're recording this, it's 2 a.m. on Thursday, the day we release this. It's 2 a.m., ladies and gentlemen. It's going to be late. <laughs> it's going to be a late night because we still got to record our Patreon episode. Oh, my God. And we got to edit them and create graphics and put them out. We're running a little late. OK, running a little late. Just a little. We're tired. Yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah. This theory is just that they were actually abducted. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean. I kind of like the next theory the best, in my opinion. Tell us about it. All right. The last theory we have is that the government had something involved with this. Barney was in the Army and was discharged due to injuries from what it seems. What if he was never fully discharged and was actually part of an experiment to see how people would react to certain events? Them driving home in the middle of the night on a dark highway, perfect chance to test out a new aircraft. Now, doing this scared the hell out of them, which made them repress those memories of the event. Now, to back this up even more, is like their friend Jim McDonald, that CIA agent, or retired CIA agent. Why did he have to be there for that meeting with two IBM guys, or supposedly government scientists, that is what Betty thought? That's what I like, Dan. That's what I like. You're making sense. So, I like to think that the United States government saw an opportunity to not only test a new aircraft, but also test to see what Betty and Barney Hill's reaction was to being abducted, right? 
They have this new aircraft, and then they test the medicine to make them forget, to see how well they can forget. And then they do these weird experiments to see, to kind of like make it look like they were abducted by aliens. And then they leak that story to the press to get the public's opinion on alien abductions, which you got to think at the time, that wasn't happening. That wasn't really talked about. There was no people saying, hey, I've got abducted by aliens, you know. Maybe it was a way for the government to test out the new aircraft, to test out some type of new, like, mind-altering substance that they had to make people forget, and to also test out the public's perception on uh, aliens and abductions. All right. I don't know. That's my theory. I'm going to keep adding to this government one. Okay. But by the way, I just want to say, that's my theory. That's my personal thought and theory. All right. So it's government testing. Not only did it test with Barney and Betty and making them forget, which that's another part that I'm going to involve in a second, but they also showed that their aircraft could not be identified by two bases because the bases both were tracking and spotted an unidentified flying object. And then it was reported to Project Blue Book and they just kind of swept it away. So obviously they're hiding something there. Now, what made Barney and Betty forget? Isn't it? So I don't know too much about truth serums. But don't truth serums, like say, all right, I'm just going to say it off of uh, the movie, what? Meet the Falkers. He gives them the truth serum, ask him whatever he wants. Then he forgets that he was ever asked that. So it makes you forget that you were even like questioned. You know what? It's funny you mentioned that. When I was uh, taken back for my surgery in December of 2018 or 19, I had surgery on my arm to remove a mass that they thought was cancer. It's besides the story, but, or it's besides the, beside whatever. That's not necessary to explain that. Anyways, I was super nervous about my surgery, and uh, they gave me some cocktail in my IV that immediately made me feel as if I was extremely intoxicated. And it immediately got rid of all of my worries, everything. The entire room went kind of like wavy. And then it got really like um, my memory got really fragmented. I remember being wheeled back to the operating room. I remember the operating people telling me to get onto the other gurney. And then I remember all of the people standing above me in the operating room and me talking about um, a uh, Chick-fil-A and them saying, oh, we're going to have Chick-fil-A for lunch and me saying, oh, how I much how much I love Chick-fil-A. And then I don't remember anything after that. Yeah. So that whatever that is, they could have gave them that because that screwed me up. It's like getting your wisdom teeth taken out. You see all those videos, those everyone's like just talking and all that. And then later on. What did I say? I didn't say that. Nope. Here, here's video. You said it. They don't remember a damn thing. And did you know that truth serum is, uh, it's never actually been officially proven to be completely effective, but uh, any type of like truth inducing drugs are considered unconstitutional and unethical under international law. And they are classified as a form of torture and cannot be used. Which that right there tells you. I mean, Barney was traumatized by something. Yep. I like the government one, but then again, I do want to believe. 
Yeah, me too. I, well, I like the government one, them pretending to be aliens to see what, uh, how the public would react. Hey, maybe the government already had a deal with the aliens, right? And they were like, hey, we'll let you abduct some of our people and uh, you guys can experiment on them. But we want to see how the public's going to react if we come out and say that aliens are real. So let's do a little test run and see the public's perception on aliens. And then if they respond to it good, then we'll go ahead and say, hey, yeah, aliens are real. Look, we're in communication with them. Dwight D. Eisenhower ended up doing a handshake deal with them. And Skinny Bob got caught on camera, <laughs> like our Skinny Bob episode. <laughs> Skinny Bob. Oh, man. Which, if you haven't listened to that one, go listen to our Patreon episode called Skinny Bob. It's over alien video footage that was found. Super good. Yeah, it's not Bob that, uh, Betty's first husband. It's actual, no. supposed alien, Skinny Bob. Yeah. All right, so I guess we've kind of already been in personal thoughts and theories, right? We've been kind of discussing it ourselves. Yeah. It was something I wanted to mention that I forgot to mention during Strange Facts and Findings, but there was a UFO that was captured on video in Turkey in 2008, and uh, it was, it's considered to be like one of the best UFO videos ever. And I attached a still frame photo of, a, uh, of the UFO, which you can see right there, and then somebody decided to zoom in on that craft and you can see the little window area, little alien beings <sighs> in the aircraft. Isn't that strange? It's a very good still image of it, that's for sure. You, you see the head shape and those are some deep eye sockets. Yeah, very similar to what Barney described as the vehicle having a window and beings being in the window looking at him. But, yeah, I'll have these pictures up on our website for any of you to go take a look at if you want to. Do you got anything else you want to talk about in regards to this? My fishing tournament idea. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, fishing tournament. Let's talk about that. All right. Just this is real quick, guys. It's going to sound dumb. It's going to be terrible. So we were reading earlier the capture and release. It reminded me of our fishing tournament where we were just catching bass and whatever else and just releasing them. Well, what if aliens only come to Earth during their, you know, AKA fishing tournaments. They end up beaming up, you know, or capturing these humans, uh, specimens. And then later on, they just release them. Now, then you got some of these aliens who are fishing, not in the tournament, and then they're just keeping them. And that's when people go missing. <laughs> kind of like the missing 411. Exactly. You know what? I wonder if they go by intelligence or by weight of person. You know, hmm. like, hey, we caught a little bitty fella right here. You know, he's a buck, a buck 80. Let's throw him back. We want a big 600 pound, thousand pound person off of, you know, the TV show TLC. You think that's why they go for cows? Not, not people, <laughs> actual cows. Actual cows. Yeah. <laughs> not to be mean like yeah. that. I'm talking actual cows because, you know, they supposedly like going after animals. But yeah, I mean, it kind of made me think of that and made me laugh. It was like, oh, they're having a fishing tournament. But no, it's a good question, either by weight or IQ. Yeah, something interesting to think about. I mean, I think Barney had an IQ of 140, so he wasn't dumb. He was actually pretty smart, so. Yeah, he was very smart. 
Oh, and another thing that we forgot to mention was that supposedly the aliens were very interested in Barney's dentures for some reason. Really? Yeah. I don't, I don't know why. So they would have field day with uh, George Washington, huh? You know what? He didn't have wooden teeth. That's fake. What? Yeah, it's fake. He never had wooden teeth. Mandela effect. Look it up. Get out of here with that. All right. Well, I know there's a lot more to this story and a lot more strange facts and findings that we didn't mention, uh, but this is a giant topic. We covered what we could. Uh, we will touch back on it later, but, you know, we, we got what we could today. Yes. And I hope you all liked the story. And that is Betty and Barney Hill. All right. Uh, so now we're going to transition to our on the scene, which if you are not familiar with our on the scene, it is where individuals around the world uh, go and interview other individuals on the street, our family members or whomever, and ask them certain questions about current conspiracy happenings that are occurring around the world. Now, anyone, anyone, including you, yes, you could go and ask someone conspiracy questions, record it with your phone, and submit that recording to our email addresses, which you can find at our website, and you go to contact, and there's our email addresses. It's Aaron at theoriesofthethirdkind.com, Dan at theoriesofthethirdkind.com. You submit that audio recording to us, and make sure it's less than two minutes, and we will put you in line to be played for our On the Scene, which is played at the end of our show each week. Now, this week's On the Scene is from Becky and Brannon. So we're going to take a listen to that right. Send me that beautiful bean footage. Now. This is Becky and Brannon coming to you live on the scene just outside of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Brannon, I would like to ask you a few questions. Is that okay with you? That's fine. Okay. One, if you secretly had the opportunity to go to Bohemian Grove, would you go... And what would you like to accomplish there? I would go. I would go in a heartbeat. And the thing that I'm, I think I would most want to accomplish is to expose the the elites and the world controllers for what they are. I would die, but that's it's a worthwhile cause to me. So is it safe to say that you don't trust the government? Absolutely not. No further than you could throw them. Okay, so you don't believe that. Fauci and Big Pharma have our best interest in this whole current event thing. They got the on. best, that their best interest is their pocketbooks. Absolutely. And that's all there is to say about it. Okay. Do you believe in the paranormal? Absolutely, I do. And actually, I've got a quick story about it. Um, <clears throat> so when I was younger, I grew up in a small town in, uh, in the Midwest. And there was a hill like there is most in small towns called uh, uh, Hooters Hill. That was a great place me and my buddies used to go and watch thunderstorms roll in because you could see for miles and miles and miles. Well, we was up there one night waiting on a thunderstorm to get in, and about the time I got my pickup shut off, it was all dark and everything. All three of us, there was three of us in the truck, all three of us at the same time seen a campfire and an Indian with a headdress. And it scared us, it was terrifying. It scared us, we got out of there. Never went back. I don't blame you at all. 
Okay, any thoughts on Bigfoot? Bigfoot is my favorite person on planet Earth. I have an eight foot tall Bigfoot plyboard cutout in front of my house and I have a three, three and a half foot, somewhere in there, concrete Bigfoot statue that complements my wife's flower bed amazingly. She does not like it, but it is awesome. I can relate. I don't like the one my husband has in my flower bed. Okay, well, there you have it, folks. This is Becky and Brandon signing out. See you later. Nice. Very nice. I like that. I like when couples uh, submit their recordings to us. Oh, were they a couple? I don't know. I'm assuming so. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of weird. They both had this statue in their yard in their flower beds. Yeah. But thank you for that great on the scene. I love it. That was really good. I love that southern drawl. I don't know about uh, sacrificing yourself for, to go to Bohemian Grove. We don't want you to sacrifice oh, yeah. yourself. We do want the elites you know, to be uncovered. If you go, send us an email. We'd love to hear about it. <laughs> No, send us an email. We'll go with you. Maybe we should start a, uh, you know how they did the storm, the Area 51? Maybe we should have a storm Bohemian Grove. Oh, they have like no trespassing signs. We'll all go to jail. Then we'll all have like, we'll all be probed. Do you think they could arrest like 5,000 people at the same time? You're right. They'll just shoot us on sight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they can't shoot us all though. Meat shields. <laughs> I think it'd be safer to raid that than it would be to raid Area 51. Because Area 51, you're talking about military. Uh, Bohemian Grove, you're just talking about Illuminati people, you know? Talking about maybe uh, Bill Clinton, George Bush running around peeing in the woods. You just got to worry about old wieners. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Enchanting, trying to bring demons. Yes. Summoning spells and stuff. Sacrificing things. Getting adrenochrome. Yeah, but again, thank you, Becky and Brandon, for your submission. I love you, and I am proud of both of you. Same. All right, so we are pushing our shout-outs to next week since it's now 2.30 in the morning on the Thursday when this episode needs to be published, and we still have to edit it and record our Patreon episode too. So all of our um, shout-outs are being pushed to next week, so we apologize about that. It's all Aaron's fault. Yeah, it is all my fault. No, nope, I'm kidding. Damn it, Aaron, don't do that to me. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, so we're going to wrap this up. I hope you all enjoyed the episode, and I want to thank you all for joining us today. And again, thank you for your support. You are amazing, every single one of you. I love you all. So with that being said, Dan, you want to roll us out? Sure will. It's okay to be out of this world with your thoughts. Because you are not alone. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.